wait, wait, smoke alarm? So I drove up and I could see the smoke, you know, from a mile away. And so this wasn't just a fire. Our, our building was engulfed in, in fire. And I think at that time, I, I don't remember our square footage. It was probably close to 10,000 square feet. Got there and there were 11 fire departments there. No. I called my wife and I was absolutely gutted. You know, I was I was crying and sobbing, just like, it's gone. Everything's gone. I, I was I couldn't move and I, I finally got my shit together and I stood up and I started fixing things. So I melted down and then started fixing things. I went into action. From Escape Collective, this is Overnight Success, the podcast about the entrepreneurs, the personalities, and the passionate people who make up the sport of cycling and the stories behind the icons they've built. Defeat is mostly thought about as a sock brand, and that's largely the case, even though they also make arm warmers, gloves, and base layers. After 31 years of being in the trade, they're the longest standing business dedicated to socks in the cycling industry that I'm aware of. Back in the 90s, socks may have been the least interesting and most neglected piece of apparel in the cyclist wardrobe, or any athletes for that matter. They were just a flimsy tube of cotton or wool that covered the feet. It was a thankless job that nobody really gave too much thought to. What it took to change that was a man by the name of Shane Cooper, who had a unique set of skills, hobbies, and passions that all miraculously came together to change the game in socks. Uh, it goes back to my father. Uh, he was a, a technician for a company called Bentley. And when I say Bentley, it's not the automobile, it's the knitting machines from Lester. And if you think of Bentley in, in cycling terms, it's like a camping Nolo. It's, it's the highest end, you know, uh, knitting machine parts okay. and machines. So anyway, he came to the U.S. Uh, in 1967 as a technician for two years. And he brought his three kids and wife with him. And he saw the land of opportunity and it's the absolute American dream where he came over for Bentley and then ended up becoming their distributor for the U.S. I mean, okay. it's, it's that incredible. So I grew up in the sock machine, basically. My dad would take me with him to the all the different mills and I learned mechanics at a young age. And back then, the, the knitting machines were all mechanical. So when I did apply myself to a, a college degree, I did study electronics engineering, which was the time when when machines were going from mechanical to electronic, which was huge. And so that's kind of how I started Defeat. I had my father's upbringing around the sock machine, and then I ended up buying a machine from him, actually. On the sock side, that's kind of how it it, it came about. Did this really interest you, or was dad making kind of... Because I, I imagine socks weren't a hugely sexy product at the time. W was it something that interested you? or Because I do know that you have a huge passion of, for music, and it seems like that's the career path that you went for early on. Yeah, I kind of left that kind of blank, you know, kind of vague right there. And so, no, it, I didn't like socks. Who, <laughs> who liked socks at that age? You know, I, the electronics was cool because it was just coming about. Yeah. But right out of high school, I joined a band. Yeah. And so I traveled. I, I was the worst musician in the band, but I ended up kind of leading the band. But we ended up traveling the East Coast as a college band. And we had a recording studio, which I've learned 
quite a bit from. And then, uh, you know, we're very fortunate. We're paid a salary. I mean, what musicians are paid a salary in a company, have a recording studio, and then get to go travel on the, you know, to the college circuit. Yeah. So that's where my passion was. It was in music. But I was also a smitten cyclist. So cycling, I would take my bike with me to all these colleges and I'd ride with the fraternity guys right. while the sound was being done. I'd go ride, you know, and so cycling and the band and socks were kind of all hanging around together in my brain. When the band stopped when I was 26, I wanted to go into cycling, you know, as much as I could. Again, I wasn't a good enough cyclist. I met my wife at a bike shop. And the reason she's very important in this beginning is it was probably 1987 and we started romancing and we're both bike racers. And it got to the point where we started racing bikes together and she could win money. And I was spending money racing bikes, but she was good enough to win. So she was supplementing her income and I was uh, wasting mine. And so in 1992, we got married, went to the Tour de Pont on our honeymoon. And by November, I had found a way to get into the sport that I love with something that I knew as a kid. And I was in the passion and I found a way to create defeat. All those things came together. You were thinking at this point that, what can I do with my life? Hey, I've got this, I've got that. Let's combine them. Or how did that kind of, what was the impetus behind that thinking and how you actually made a sock? Well, at 27, I'm not sure how much I was thinking. It's funny how they all come together because in I think I mentioned it just a, a little while ago, you know, music taught me how to be a member of a team. It taught me leadership. It taught me marketing. And so did cycling because I became the team leader because I was getting the sponsors and, you mm -hmm. know, you learn how to delegate. You All these things were coming together. And then when the defeat egg started to boil, I want to create. Uh, that's one thing that I do a lot I'm into art and mm. I was able to create this idea um, at the perfect time in in cycling, and it was taking some some of the yarns that I that I, that I discovered through cycling. I discovered Coolmax. I mean, if you remember the Tour Dupont, which was where we went on our honeymoon, Dupont. Well, damn, they sell Coolmax. They had thermostat. They had Kevlar. They had Enron, and they had carbon fiber. All these things that are used in in cycling, and so. Yeah, I, I I learned about this this Coolmax fabric. So all of a sudden, I wanted to improve the sock. Okay, so I'm armed with my family knowledge, and I I start to wrap it together and with this new material. And so we created the aerator. And once we created this aerator, uh, I knew that we had something special. What did socks look like at the time? Like there obviously was a problem that you <laughs> saw that needed to be solved. Well, think back or, to the machinery that I mentioned earlier from from England. They they were uh, jacquard knit, which would be very very uh, uh, rudimentary, if you will. The colors would be very woven into the fabric very closely, and it was very difficult to see a logo. And so, the new machinery that was able to do a, a true motif print, almost printed, but it's not printed. It's actually knit into the side of the sock instead of in woven integral into the knit. So this new motif could be put on the side of the sock, very legible. And right. so I saw that from the computer-aided graphics side, as opposed to the old mechanical ones. So, so I saw that part. But adding the Coolmax, the way a tradition, this is important. Now, the way the you asked what they looked like, they were, you would wear them one day and they would be toast. They, you know, they had bad construction. 
not durable and not very elastic. They were just a tube so, of cotton. By the well, the tube of cotton or a tube of wool, right? right. right. You're, you're right. But the way socks are sold is they're sold by a technique that's called hand. And what that means, when you walk into a shop to feel a sock, you feel the outside of the sock, right? Yeah. So you're feeling the cotton or the wool, but what's on the inside of that is a nylon rebar. And so your foot's sitting on a bed of nylon rebar. And so when we created the aerator with this new technology, this new space age material, Coolmax, which was soft and it was tetra channeled wicking material, we put it where your foot sweats on the bottom. And then we put the nylon to the outside. And that was our secret ingredient into the aerator, the very first sock. So it had some very high-end properties to it. So it was durable, it wicked moisture, it fit really well because of the new techniques in knitting, and it also was customizable. Yeah. And you could put your logo on the sock. And at the time in the US, it was illegal to have any other color sock than a white sock. Is that right? That that was like what a UCI rule or a yeah. USA cycling rule? Uh, USCF rule, right, uh, right. United States Cycling Federation. It sounds like you you knew a lot more about socks than just the machine, like to be able to do everything you just described with materials and moisture wicking channels and all that. What what was your first try like? You know, when the first sock you made, is it much different than it is the aerator is today, or was it pretty bad looking back at it, or pretty basic, I guess? The first aerator, the difference would be uh, I had my fax number stitched into the <laughs> bottom of the sock. We don't use a fax anymore. Is that but right? And uh, the first order was for the team that I worked with. And it was a $300 order, you know, that helped me pay for my racing. So that very first sock is very similar to what you see today. However, we had a three inch cuff. Yeah, and yeah. now the cuffs are six inches. And that's a whole nother story. That's a big debate uh, in but itself. Yes. Th that is it. Yeah. You saw that a better sock could be made. You went to the Tour de Pont. You made, uh, what, a batch of 300, as you just alluded to? Or um, what was the start of it? And was it a bit crazy thinking back? Think Because socks, like we talked about, weren't overly um, a technical item or like a, something that anyone put much thought into. Was it a bit crazy looking back, thinking that you could change that game at all? Or was it, did it make complete sense to you at the time and now looking back at it? From a technical side of it, not just from the machine, but from writing. So when I'm writing, I want to solve problems too. And I want to create, I'm an artist yeah. or artist minded or artistic minded. So when I would take my socks in the trunk of our Ford Taurus to bike racers, you meet George Hincapie at an event and you, you, you gift him a pair of flamingo socks and he wears them. That's telling you something, right? That's telling you this, this might be some good stuff here. And, uh, then we started making socks for LA sheriffs, which was a cycling team in 1993. Our first year in business, we went back the first full year in business. We went back to the Tour de Pont and they wore the yellow jersey in our sock. So we, we knew. It wasn't a crazy idea and we could customize these things. I've already proven that I could make 150 pair for my local bike shop and, and afford to race for the year, you know, by selling socks. And so bike shops just started picking them up and we started coming out with the Flamingo or the Chili Pepper sock and they became an instant hit. And it was like not drugs. It was like candy or ice cream. Everybody wanted it. You know, it was like it was cool. And what about the roadblock with the... um the Cycling Federation having white socks only while racing. Did that not matter or did they change that? Or <laughs> I, I have no clue. We just plowed through it and we never heard we never heard a word until uh 
I, I guess we got our first letter of a cease and desist, which is a whole nother story on uh, the UCI and the rainbow. Um, uh, yeah, you know, we've was, had those uh, too. Really funny yeah. that we were, we were so, we were so uh, influential in the world with a rainbow sock. We got the letter. Do you have one of those? Yeah, I've got a letter too. Um, we had the, the rainbow stripes, uh, I think one pixel high on our website, um, just as a slight uh -huh. little dab of, uh, of color in the previous business. Yeah. And yeah, we got one for that as well. So I'm like, eh, they're, yeah. they're paying attention. That's a good thing. Eh? But we had actually won world championships, yeah, yes, yes, you yes, know, yes. with Cavendish and Boonin and yeah. uh, Museo. Uh, I thought we had the blessing, you know, like, uh, I guess Capanolo has the blessing and I was looking for the blessing and we didn't get it. Or you got to pay them to license it. One of the two. <laughs> no, I didn't. I gave. I, I asked if we could yeah, actually, yeah. and uh, they gave me a stiff answer. So I gave them the middle finger uh, and walked away from the uh, even using their mm. world championship stripes. So that's that's another story. But you know, so that was ninety three, ninety four. Lamond wore the socks in uh, in the Tour de France. Well, sorry. And then uh, could, could I just back up for a sec? Um, how did you get in touch with Greg Lamond? Because he would have been a big deal at the time, and um, tell me how that relationship came to place. That one's actually another story back to the Tour de Pont. 93's Tour de Pont came through North Carolina and I went with a backpack with little mannequin feet sticking out of it, <laughs> walking around giving socks to all the riders. You know, I'm like Shane Sockseed. I'm handing out these socks uh, in, in the trenches when the riders would come in. I saw a guy in a Saturn outfit and it was Christian and I gave him a pair of socks and he turned around and he said, Hey, Paul, you got to see these socks this guy's giving away. So this guy named Paul Willerton came walking out of his trailer and he was with Subin Montgomery. And so I gave him a pair, shook hands and went on my merry way. Mm -hmm. And probably, oh, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, I get a call from Paul Willerton and I had left my, my phone number is on just like my fax, it's knit into the bottom of the sock. Yeah. So he could have faxed me, or <laughs> but he chose to call me, and uh, we became friends. Yeah. And Paul was racing on Team Zed prior the prior year with Greg, and he was Greg's protege, and I didn't know this. And so this year, Paul was on Super Montgomery, and so we started making socks for Super Montgomery. And then one day, Paul said, hey, uh, somebody wants to talk to you, and it was Greg LeMond, and it was my hero. Yeah. on the other line you know and so he said uh come up and meet me and i'm going to be in Asheville." and so i made all these socks for team gan in 1994 and it was right before the tour de france and so you know next thing i know we made every rider 10 dozen pair of socks with their names stitched into the bottom and so i sent those over to greg's house in belgium and i don't know he i had this vision it was kind of weird i had a vision that we would become friends yeah and we did. Paul Willerton is was the catalyst, and Paul Willerton and I became brothers more than friends. Is that right? You know, and Paul is still with me to this day, leading the charge on our branding and quite a few other areas of our our company. So that's how I met Greg Lamond. Right. So at this time, it sounds like you you've have you just bought a sock machine or a few? Must you must have a few? Um, do you have employees at this point, or are you going around yourself making socks, giving them away? trying to sell them to shops. Tell me about that period and what the business looked like and what you were doing alone, what you had people doing for you. What was that time like? Uh, that's interesting because all the things that I'd ever learned were coming into play now. 
in my cycling had to take a little bit of a back seat because yeah i was running one the one machine we had and then i bought uh, three more so i had four machines so i'm running these things uh i think they were twenty five thousand dollars each or something my dad gave me three months to pay and we paid for the first one really quick and then wow it it, it got uh we we were kicking ass you know for for the first nine years uh it was an incredible ride really so that's what it looked like i would be on the phone and then i hired one of my uh bike racers that was on my team and he started to help out and then my sister caroline uh stepped in and started helping me with some of the inventory uh, invoicing and such and then we grew and it, you know we were hiring mechanics now i knew how to knit to to work on a machine i wasn't the best but i could do it and you know one of my superpowers i tell this to everybody is i'm dyslexic and dyslexics are very easy to to uh delegate right. because at a young age we can't read and so we rely on other people and we trust other people and we get a gut instinct so pretty quickly i hired people that could do a better job than i could so so you you your you, your father helped you buy these machines um your, your wife is a partner in the business too isn't she at that time my wife was exercise physiologist okay. uh working in a cardiac rehab department in the local hospital right right and so her her main role in the beginning was to make sure that what I would write, you know, for a for a flyer would be grammatically correct. Okay. And then her other job was to make sure what I was spending, she she could manage me very well. You know, I was given $30 a week to eat on, you know, <laughs> and that was my budget. And she ran the back end of it, but she worked her other job. Yeah, and okay. this was my my full-time gig, but I also ran my father's company uh a bit because he got unfortunately sick with cancer and died pretty quickly mm. uh he was uh he died at 55. oh wow and so that was 1995 i believe so he got he but he did he did get to see a magical thing whenever we started that first year in 93 he said oh you're not successful until you have greg lamond and so he got to see greg lamond and that was magic fantastic so it sounds like a pretty like a dream run of a start of a business. Um, you know, uh, you hear a lot of the times that these things don't last three years and, but you were onto a really good thing. These things were selling like hotcakes and you were giving them a, a lot away as well and signing pro teams. Is, is that an accurate description of that? Yeah. And so Paul Willerton, we're going to go back to Paul, uh, also started to connect me in the industry and he gave me the contact, uh, look, mm. Jonathan Boyer, Jonathan Boyer was the first American to ride the Tour de France mm. is what I believe the statement is. But anyway, he had a company called uh, Veltic Boyer and they're out of California. And I met him at Interbike and we sold Look, a sock, which turned into CD, Look, and then Bell, Giro, right. RockShox, Shimano. Every company at the Interbike trade show had to defeat socks and they became like currency. People would trade the sock for you know it's like beanie babies i'm going holy shit. everything we did up until 2001 everything we did was successful and that can be bad for a person and i became quite egotistical because you know we we came out with an arm arm warmer we got a utility patent and it was highly successful the Neeker, mm -hmm. the slipstream the dura glove all these things that were uh, invented here at defeat uh were really good values and incredible products and so the pros you know mario cipollini and tom boonen 
they wear the overshoe in Europe or the Dura glove, and it's just like selling like hotcakes. And next thing you know, we've got international distribution. And you know, did I mention I'm not a business guy? I don't. I'm not trained. Well, in this business, is what I so, want to kind of dig you know, into a, because you you make it sound so easy, and I know very <laughs> firsthand that it's not easy. And um, you know, and and back in those days, it wasn't as simple as just doing a direct e-commerce website where you throw up an Instagram account and socks are fast fashion and like this is. Um, <laughs> You know, this is something that you would have had to physically get distribution for, and bike shops are the main uh, outlet. When you think back, was it quite a slog, or was it um, you just had good people around you who did this, and and it uh, it happened? I know it's not that simple. <laughs> I think that, of course, the team. It was definitely a, a, a huge team effort, and the people that I had hired really took the ball and ran with it. Relationships that I would establish, I still have most of them to this day, whether it's uh, our English distributor or our Belgian distributor. You know, ethics, I guess, go a long way and they, they, they build upon themselves. And our socks were selling themselves at that time. There was no competition. Mm. You know, it was defeat versus all the other socks that we made. Manufacturing your own as well. How do you think that played into, you know, just with regards to cash flow and exposure to stock and, you know, was it a, a hand to mouth type of uh, like really lean sort of operation in terms of making what you needed or um, how did you manage that? Because that's just an interesting thing that doesn't happen these days where brands don't own their own manufacturing and there's these indent orders and so forth. Yeah. You had a real advantage well, there I, by the sounds of it. We, we had a great advantage and, and at the time all the CFOs, CPAs, you know, business school graduates, MBAs were all saying, take your business to China. And we didn't. We started in in the the heat of NAFTA, the North American yeah. Free Trade Agreement. And we stayed put. And the reason we stayed put is because of probably my desire to create and product development. I couldn't stand to give any of our ideas away and let other people steal them. Uh, so I was very protective of that. And that secret sauce is why all these brands were coming to us. And it was chaos. I'll admit we were on QuickBooks. You know, we were, we were storing socks in, uh, Tupperware bowl, you know, bins and building. We we're building the building as we go. You know, I, <laughs> my dad passed away. I bought the building from his, uh, from our, from that estate. And so we're in the same facility that I knew, but we needed more space. So we're, we're constantly just, it was a good, a good nine-year run. I'll tell you that. I mean, it was very little bad going on in, uh, up until 2000, 2001. The, the only obstacle we really had is, is uh, Y2K. You know, we had to get through <laughs> 1999, you know, and, and uh, we, we got through that. And that's when the internet really started to take off. So what was it like when you were starting? Were you manufacturing out of your dad's facility or were you doing it in your basement at home? How did that look? He had a small room where I kept some of the machines that I would work on, and he let me start there with one machine. And then when I said, Dad, I want to start a business, he said, okay, well, you got three months to pay for it or whatever it was. And and we did. And he said, well, good. Now you need to get Greg LeMond, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, we did. Was there a defining yeah. moment that you can recall that you there was this period of, you know, you don't have a business when... You know, you're starting out, you're no, often people don't feel like that do, but it was there a point where you're like, I have a business now. It was, we're, we're making money. Is there a defining point you can remember back or was it just, it sounds like you had the confidence that this yeah. is it. Yeah. 
Well, we, my wife is so good managing money, whatever. Yeah. And so I never really even saw the money, but I saw we plowed everything. But I'd say, we need more machines. We'd go buy more machines. We'd pay the bank. The bank's going like, you paid that loan off too much, too quick. You know, use your, use our money a little longer, but no, we wow. plowed through that. So I never really felt accomplished that, that I'd had any success until, until the success was taken from us. Yeah. And that's when I realized, holy cow, that was a good nine years. And then give me some examples of, in hindsight, how you feel you were getting cocky. You know, was it just such a good run that you <laughs> thought you were invincible just, and making some yeah. bad mistakes? Or? Yeah. No, we, we, we didn't make any, well, we made mistakes, I'm sure, but that's not what got in the way. Bad luck got in the way, I guess. Yeah, I, yeah. I did get a mirror for uh, for Christmas one year for my weight room, and I, I cracked it. And I think that was uh, 2000. And then 2001, oh, of course, uh, you know, the infamous fire that mm. we suffered. And that <clears throat> that was a, a light ballast blew up. You know, how do you stop a light ballast from blowing up? You don't. I was cocky. Uh, my friends would probably say that. And uh, I probably needed a little bit of leveling off. I wasn't doing anything crazy or anything, but I was definitely thinking I was invincible. What age was I? Close to 40, uh, something like that. Tell me about when you heard that there was a fire in your facility. What was, how did you hear about that and what, what was entailed in that day? Two weeks prior, we'd had a, a burglar alarm go off at the factory. You know how those early systems were. I go up there and uh, looking for somebody in the building and there's a bird in the building. Huh. You know, I'm going, oh, shit. A couple of weeks later, I get the, the phone rings and it says uh, smoke alarm at the office. And I'm going, uh, I'll go back to sleep six o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. I'm, wait, wait, smoke alarm? So I drove up and I could see the smoke you know, from a mile away. So this wasn't just a fire. Our, our building was engulfed in, in fire. And I think at the time, I, I don't remember our square footage. It was probably close to 10,000 square feet. Got there and there were 11 fire departments there. No. I called my wife and I was absolutely gutted. You know, I was I was crying, sobbing, just like, it's gone. Everything's gone. I, I, was, I couldn't move and I, I finally got my shit together and I stood up and I started fixing things. So I melted down and then started fixing things. I went into action. So day two. You know, it was a crime scene for- Yeah, day two, you've got <laughs> nothing. Nothing. You've a got smoldering nothing. crime scene. Wow. Yeah. And so a fire, you know, the ATF, the fire marshal, insurance, subrogators, everybody's there and you can't go in because it's- Your inventory's uh, in there as yeah, well as your crime. machines. Well, yeah, everything's dead. Everything's Everything. smoked and water covered and soot. I remember one of my uh, memories was a guy came out and he had a, a mask on, he's a fireman, and he's trying to talk to me through his respirator. And he was asking me if I had anything that I needed to get out. And so he had a hand truck and I said, I don't know. You know, I think he pulled out some files or something. And it was a guy that I knew that I, I couldn't tell who it was. And he, to me, he was my hero because he was he was going into that fire and I couldn't. But uh, yeah, the next day we just started the action and, and started going at it just it's like in cycling, you've had a bad crash and you get back up and you keep going. And I, uh, It doesn't cross your mind to shut it down, move on, do something else. This was just a roadblock to you. I had just watched 60 Minutes, you know, the U.S. Sunday show had, they had just uh, had this guest on that who owned Malden Mills up in uh, Boston area. And they make 
polar fleece. Okay. You know, like the fluffy sweaters yeah. of, of that era. And uh, he lost his company and they were interviewing him. I think his name was Feinstein. And he employed his, his story was, I'm going to employ my employees to rebuild our company. So I did the same thing. And six months later, he filed bankruptcy. <laughs> and I thought, oh shit, I picked the wrong, I, I, I did the wrong thing. But no, we didn't. We, we did the right, definitely. I don't think I ever thought it. I couldn't give in. I, the word bankruptcy to me, I just couldn't take. It's too personal. I, I yeah. couldn't do it. How many employees would you have had at this time? 50. 50. We had three shifts. An enormous weight on your shoulders for those people and their families too, I imagine. Yeah, it was. It was, uh, it was terrible. And, uh, you know, that's, I think that gave me, I mean, I, I don't put the fire by any means, but it, it did a lot of damage to me uh, mentally, but as it would, you know, as yeah. it would anybody. What was the process of rebuilding then? What, how on earth do you put that piece of puzzle together when you know this huge thing of what you need to do versus maybe when you started with your first sock, the first sock was the goal. Now you've got 50 people. What did that yeah. look like? The big challenge is getting the knitting machines. You need how many knitting machines do you need all at one time? Yeah. That was the big challenge. Yeah. And then we relocated real quick. Uh, luckily, there was a hosiery mill that had just shut down. We occupied their space and uh, we started challenging the yarn companies or the uh, machine companies to create machines for us. And they had to be a certain productivity. And <clears throat> the good news is we started getting new machines within... I think it was nine months we were back on. Is that right? Nine months. Nine months. We moved back in. How did you fund this? Because this would have been expensive as well. Was it insurance or was that straightforward? Or Insurance covered uh, the large majority of it. However, there were some things that happened due to mistakes. Like our insurance guy, we had just bought a, a batch of like 10 machines and uh, we had ordered insurance on them. They had delivered and they had put them in our building. He was on his way next month to come and put him on the policy. Mm. So the only policy we had covered on that was ocean freight instead of, you know, inside. So we lost those machines. Right. Our insurance company uh, turned into a battle on product on the uh, business interruption. And it took us three years to settle that. Mm. They came in and offered uh, 3% over what we had done last year, but we were doubling our sales every year and we settled for 33%. You know, they offered 3% and we settled for 33 And But meanwhile, the even worse thing happened. I had trusted somebody to run my company that didn't have the same ethics as what our company had. And during that time period of the rebuild, I started getting some bad things happening at the company. And that lasted a very long, too long, actually. And so that was more depression for me. It took us seven years to get profitable again. Right. Now, remember, we had nine years of incredible and then oh. seven years of, of hell. And I, I became, well, I didn't know, but I was definitely depressed and I had a lot of, lot of issues going on then. I would have much rather been cocky guy than depressed guy. But once I got that sorted out pretty quickly and, and took the person out of the role that was causing the, the ethic, ethical problem, we got profitable in 2008. And you know what happened in 2008? The economic how did the GFC crash. affect you? The GFC? Yeah, the 2008 economic um, crisis. Yeah. Okay. Global financial crisis. Okay. Yeah, so, sorry. well, it was uh, not so bad, actually, because gas prices went to $4 and people were bringing out their Schwins and 
bike shops were flush with cash. So we didn't have, you know, a problem with that personally yeah. uh, at, at Defeat. And we started to fly again. And that's when great things were happening. Is that right? So this, that was a, an opportunity for the company and how things uh, pivoted with people's recreation. And that's great. Yeah. And so our business started to flourish <laughs> and started to get back where, where it should be. And so did that also relieve a lot of the um, uh, you know, depression you just spoke about and uh, your outlook of, <laughs> of things? Or was that as closely related? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, you got to remember during this time, I also had a family. Yeah. Right. You've got two kids. I, eh? I had a, my daughter and my son is, uh, my son was uh, born in 98. My daughter was born in March of 2001. Oh no. And we had the fire in, in October. Mm. And so one of the things we did, I went and traveled for months at a time going to bike shops, shaking hands, telling them that we would be back, that we don't have, you know, and, and by the way, it was a light ballast that burned us down. Check your light ballast. But mm. Paul Willerton or Greg Demjan, Doughboy, and I would go and we drove from Oregon down to California. We drove from uh, Utah to Chicago, down to Florida, up to New York. And I didn't see the first couple of months of my daughter's life. And, wow. you know, and then, and then of course that depression, uh, definitely was was very heavy and probably the people that i know would have never seen it but the weight was just terrible anyway you know 2008 did it go away yeah it went away and i started to be able to spend more time with my family and that's probably the the most incredible part yeah where was bike riding in your life at this point because i always joke about the great irony of uh being in the bike industry is you don't ride your bike anymore. Is that something that fell away with being in this as well? My wife always, and I have always ridden every Saturday and Sunday. And then through the week, I was probably doing Tuesday night, Thursday night, world championships. You know how that is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I stayed at it. Yeah, so I, I stayed on the bike. I don't think I let the bike slip away. And, and probably that was a great place for me to... Uh, to find myself and remember who I was, you know, it's, it's in, in the core, you know, being a cyclist, I did gain weight and my wife lost weight. And so it was an ironic thing to, you know, my wife started beating me on the climbs pretty early, you know, as soon as I got up to probably 200, she started dropping me and still, I still can't catch her. You know, we're both <laughs> over 60 now. So you have yeah. a heck of a lot of, um, amazing athletes, uh, with amazing results in some of the biggest races in the world wearing your product. Um, it might not mean a lot to the average fan, but how do, what, it, like, what does it mean to you? It must be amazing. Well, I think, you know, Paul Willerton taking that sock in the very beginning and getting it to Greg LeMond, Greg LeMond, where he wore a four or five inch black and sock in Paris-Roubaix. Then they wear the yellow jersey. It was incredible. But more so than that, because of these riders, I walk into a Belgian bike shop and defeat socks. You know, it, I forgot what year it was, 97. Defeat socks are in a Belgian bike shop. That's the motherland of cycling. Then what I started to do is listen. We listened to the riders. And so when Paolo Tini and Freddie Rodriguez came to me and they said, hey, this speed play pedal is, is too uncomfortable. I need a little bit of padding right over that area. So we listened to them and we created the sock. Huh. And that sock today is our, our cyclismo. 
So that's where it came from. Is that right? Uh, from Paula Bettini and Freddie Rodriguez. So yes, it's wonderful that they're wearing them, and our branding is on Tom Boone and Mark Cavendish. You name the teams. You know, uh, Caleb Ewan. Uh, you know, Museo's uh, here. BMC his leg. You know, wearing your socks as well. Looks like it's pointing to your sock in the velodrome of Roubaix. Well, he he had the funny story about that is Museo had just. Uh, recovered from crashing in in uh the Ehrenberg forest and he got pig shit in his open wound and almost lost his leg yeah yeah so the next year he came back and he won Pierre Roubaix and he's pointing at his knee yeah and I wrote to him I said Johan tell everybody you're pointing at your sock and I'll put it in an email and in the mail I get his shoes and his helmet I have no clue what he thought I said but I got his <laughs> shoes and his helmet from that day and I've got them on the wall at the office but uh yeah, it, it, we have good relationships with our athletes still to this day. You know, we sponsor a lot of uh, Destiny and we're listening to the riders. And thank God we are because our, our latest product that we have out there is, we, I'm sure we'll talk about, is uh, setting, setting quite a bit of uh, trailblazing. You did go into gloves and, um, and, and arm warmers and you did base layers as well, right? Yes. What was the thinking and strategy behind that are these were all of these underserved uh, niches in, in in apparel or were they just well suited to the machinery you had or what was the thought behind that getting into other things one of our long-standing employees who was on my bike racing team uh scott duncan is in our product development and scott would go shane is this all we have is this all we have can't we do something more and so next was the woolly gator then the woolly bully and then the arm sleeve, you know, the arm skin, which has got a utility patent. And what we figured out is we're really good at underwear. So we said, well, let's try a base layer. And our base layer is incredible. Mm. The Dura glove, you know, kept going. And so our, we, we are un socks or underwear for your feet. Yeah. So we started creating these products and again, they were finding success. They were great value and they lasted a long time and they're performing really, really well. The first year of the undershirt, Bobby Julik wore at the Tour de France on the coldest day on the mountaintop. Uh, forgot which mountain. And the next day, George Hincapie was wearing it on the flats on the hottest day. And I realized that the temperature difference in that product was, was fantastic. Hmm. Then Jan Ulrich, he was sponsored by Adidas, but he would cut his Defeat logo just out and just leave that. a little bit so we could see who was wearing our product. Yeah. And a couple of times he did interviews uh, in, in the undershirt. So those products were just going nuts. And uh, again, the, that was part of the success. And we did try outerwear. Now, this is where we get into one of Defeat's so-called failures, which pretty much any business will experience at some point. Now, I figured I'd paraphrase this part as it gets a little bit tricky and controversial for Shane as he didn't want to talk about it. But I've heard whispers of this happening and I've asked others and here's how the story goes. And I'm sure there are many other sides to it. Back in the height of the Lance Armstrong era in the early 2000s, Defeat ventured into the outerwear business. That is, jerseys, shorts, vests, jackets, etc. Much of the success of Defeat's outerwear apparel line relied on the good standing relationship with Greg LeMond and his bike brand that was now owned by Trek. Trek had the distribution of LeMond bikes at the time and Defeat was completely reliant on this. Unfortunately, LeMond and Armstrong had a very public fallout with regards to Lance being criticized by Greg for his relationship with the notorious doping doctor, Michele Ferrari. As Lance was known for doing, he crushed anything in his way. 
And Defeat's outerwear clothing line didn't make it any further into Trek's distribution of Le Mans bikes. As you'll probably know, Le Mans bikes didn't last for much longer under Trek either for various reasons, and that I don't have the full story to. Rafa came out, you know, and, and they came out at a perfect time. And they used the media of uh, direct to consumer and incredible products. You know, everybody loved the way it looked. It was mm. bromance times 10. And there's no way we could have caught that once that caught on fire. And they, but we had gone very similar direction to what they had. Arguably, however, they created a whole new market because a lot of Instagram brands have grown up to be proper brands like Map. Um, you know, I don't think they could have done what they'd done without, uh, without Rafa, arguably. I don't know, maybe not, but it doesn't give them enough credit. But uh, I think they did. They, they, I think what they did is they they brought in a sense of fashion that wasn't in cycling. Mm. And I think that, you know, your generation, uh, that my generation was a little bit more on the technical side and we all looked the same. We had black shorts and whatever, red, blue, or yellow or jersey. Mm. That was about it. But, you know, you guys are coming, you know, nowadays they're wearing green shorts and blue shorts and brown shorts. And it does make a difference and it sells a whole lot of product. Yeah. But- Map and, and there's so many good brands out there that are doing an incredible job, you know, or not. And Astroy, there's incredible fashion. And the new one uh, from the female uh, side of things, not Velocio, they've done an incredible job mm. too. I want to give credit to the Instagram companies that did create an incredible environment, you know, and that goes back to 10 Speed Hero, to The Athletic, the Handlebar Mustache, Seiko 7, and um, Rich Supply. Out of all those guys, and there, there's Buku's more, and they chose Defeat to make their socks. Yeah, that's right. And they brought fashion like you wouldn't believe, and they they really, really notched up the game. And I had to get competitive with those guys a little bit, you know, and I, Rich Supply is still uh, doing an incredible job at it. That's one important part about Defeat and why we survived. And we ha I haven't even said the word, custom socks. Mm. We make custom socks. We make the best custom socks on the planet, damn it. And we make them out of the highest quality material. And I don't want this to sound like an ad, but that is our advantage. Hmm. You know, the technical, all the things that we did, all the yarns that we use, we also can do a custom product. And that's when we went back to being the beanie baby the, of the trade show, uh, the, the trade show currency. That's because we made great product, but we made it with your name on it. Yeah, you know, that's a beautiful part. So our, our custom department is 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 the leader. This podcast is fully funded by our members at Escape Collective. In fact, all of our content on our website and our podcast network is 100% supported by our members who believe that cycling media should be independent from the sport and industry we cover and that we should exist to serve you rather than live or die by our ability to be a platform for the sole purpose of selling you more stuff. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our other work and believe in our mission of independence, please go to escapecollective.com join and become a member today. Thank you for your support. Tell me about uh, how the Secret Service uh, approached you in, well, I don't know, it was 2008-ish or whatever to make a sock for President Bush. How did that all come about? So I was, I, I, let's see, how did it come about? Uh, Jared Weinstein was George Bush's aide. That, that was his number one aide. And George, uh, I think 
Weinstein had been to Duke University, which is in North Carolina. And for whatever reason, he is a big defeat fan. And he turned George, uh, the president, into a big defeat fan. Huh. And so they were getting these socks made for the uh, for the White House. But the call came in. I was commuting on my way home. And my wife called. She said, you've got to call this number back. It's the Secret Service. And they're trying to get a hold of you. And I'm going, oh, shit, what did I do? <laughs> and uh, so I call him and I start to talk. And it's Jared Weinstein. And he's saying, we'd like to make some socks. And I said, okay, cool. We'll make them. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll donate them. We'll give them to you. And we'll do a big press around. And nope, we're, we're going to buy them. And you can't say anything about it. I said, well, let's make a big story. He said, no, it's a non-issue. We're going to pay you. I said, okay, how many do you want? He said, 26 pair. <laughs> and I said, we can't make 26 <laughs> pairs. So I said, okay, we'll do it for you. We'll charge you 12 bucks a pair, whatever it was. He said, okay. So they did it. And then three le- weeks later, they they called again. They needed another 26 pair. I said, why don't you just order one big? So this went on for, I don't know, four years or more. Is that right? Oh, God. Yeah. In batches and, of 26. what he would do... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so he uh, he would ride with people and he would give them socks. And so our socks are treasured all over the world with dignitaries that got to ride with George G.W. And it was the Peloton One sock. Peloton One. Peloton One. Yeah, yeah. And this 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 continues to grow into into incredible stories. I mean, they invited us to the White House for the holiday holiday decoration reception, and we were one of three hundred people invited. So my wife and I went, and uh, the crazy thing was um, we made a bunch of socks for this. We made 300 socks for this event. Yeah. And we sent him the bill, and the stories inside the White House are out of control, and it was incredible. But uh, the story after the fact is they didn't pay their bill (laughs) because Obama got in, and Obama sent that invoice that we had back, returned to senders. So he didn't pay for his socks. I thought, damn, he finally got me. They got free socks. And then like three months later, they called from Dallas and they wanted more socks. They said, well, you got a problem. You haven't paid your bill. And, Does the uh, White House have like a cash so, payable number? <laughs> I, I guess so. I, I, they, they, I don't even know how it was going up. Obama was not going to pay for George's socks. <laughs> and was- So uh, they paid their bill and we made socks for, for the, the reunion and got to go to Kennebuckport uh, where uh, the Walker estate is and got to ride with George and went to his house and to his pool and got to ride in a boat with his dad. I did not vote for him, but one time I'm an independent. So, and I told him that and he didn't care. He was funny as hell, man, that guy, he, and he could ride a mountain bike. I, I know there's a lot of different opinions of him, but you put him on a bike and he's just like the rest of us. And that's what, that was cool. Was he wearing the socks? Oh, hell yeah. Then yeah. do you have, yeah. do you still have some yeah. kicking around? Yeah, we've got a, we've got a 26 uh, that a stash of them. <laughs> yeah. And we have them, we have a, a, you know, a picture and all that stuff. So, yeah, that one was, so things were looking up, right? What was that? 2008, 2009, 2010, you know, we, we won the small business of the year award in North Carolina and things are great. So um, you had another good run. That's, that's, that's impressive. And things were turning around and then the pandemic hit in 2020 and what were your first feelings about what was going to happen to the business then after you've had this, you know, your first knock, I guess, to, to realize that not everything can always go well? Were you, were you worried? Were you um, concerned? What was, what was going through your head? Yeah, I, I think everybody was concerned and worried. I think I wanted to, you know, find a way to fight through it again, you know, and our way to fight through it 
we had to lay people off just like everybody did. We couldn't go to the office, but we kept a family there, a husband and wife, and they could go to the office and they could ship. And so we played around and then I wanted to make sure a sock company for the cycling industry would be essential. Bike shops were essential because they're transportation. I talked to the governor. I talked to you know everybody I could and it was kind of up in the air. So I started to develop a nurse sock to make sure that we would be deemed essential. And we were making a, a, a sock with, with copper for uh, antimicrobial properties, but it was also compression. Right. And I was hoping that we could get it to the front lines where the nurses uh, were uh, standing on their feet all day fighting the pandemic. Mm. And then all of a sudden we were deemed essential and we fought through that one. Uh, it was difficult. The bike industry, uh, except for tour operators and events, many um, found really good times within the pandemic. Was that the outcome for you at the time? We made it through the pandemic, especially 20, uh, 2001. I mean, say 2021, 2022, uh, it started to fall apart again. And then this year has been our worst year in our company history. And we've lost more this year than, than ever. Are you now bigger than when the fire hit in terms of, um, I guess, revenue or? Oh, well, we're probably not that bad uh, from the fire because we could still produce right, so much. Right, okay. But the, the amount of business loss this year, you know, and it, it has to do with Brexit. Yeah, you know, yeah. the, it has to do with the strong dollar. You know, if you read the news today, Cigna uh, Sports and, uh, you know, Wiggle mm -hmm. uh, are all in trouble. Yeah. And they kind of created the trouble, you know, with the race to the bottom on pricing against bike shops. And yeah, there's some serious things going on right now. And, uh, you know, I think if anything, we're in we're in a survival fight again, you know, and it's like we've got to get through this one. You know, I'm 60. Yeah, yeah. I got another 15 years I got to work. Yeah. Wow. So um, do you see opportunity in this time or is it a matter of day by day trying to get through this and just manage cash and employees and stock and all that? I would say that the opportunity lies in the community. I don't know if I've used that word enough, but the community of cycling is is robust. And you go to an event and people are there hmm. and we're not dealing with COVID rules. We're dealing with you know full races, full events, participants that want to be there, and that is there. But the bike companies that shoved the 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 inventory into the uh, small mom and pop shop kind of clogged up the arteries of of cycling. But that's because they assumed that the wave would continue to go the the, the wave of, of after COVID that people would continue to buy bikes and yeah you know they had that. Uh, all those issues with supply chains and stuff. We didn't have those issues because we buy local yarn. Yeah. You know, all of our stuff comes locally. Yeah. So was there any, um, I suppose, uh, consideration or, or what's your stance on keeping manufacturing at home in the US and, um, and, and buying local and, and so forth? It, was it ever tempting to go overseas or you alluded to it before about, you know, how you don't want to let others in on your, you know, your, your, your IP? Um, What's been the thought process about keeping all of this at home for as long as you've been around? I have a real good friend of mine from France, and, and he said, why do I care if you make your product in North Carolina? It's a good question. You know, why should he care? And I thought about it for a long time. Nobody cares that we make it in North Carolina. What they care about is, is it's made high quality. Mm. And to, the way you get high quality is you control your resources and you pick only the best. If I made a yarn out of crappy socks... 
So if I go to China and make socks, which I could do for a lot more affordable, then the product that you're going to get is not going to be as good. Mm. And you won't have the standards that we have here. And then what they do to the environment in China, I've seen it firsthand. It's absolutely horrific. And so our playground is being affected by that. And so we choose to stay local. So my answer to my dear friend from France is the reason we do it locally is because you want a very high quality product. And that's what he said. He wanted a high quality product. I said, this is how we keep the integrity of our product here. Mm. And then innovation. So our, our three core values are quality, innovation, and community. We hit quality and innovation every day, and we still participate in cycling events. You know, whether or not we're there as a a, a trade show or if we're, my wife and I are actually racing. You know, we, we've done a lot of the BWRs. We did Unbound this year through the mud. We do a lot of events with with our brands. So, and, and that's about, about the community, but the community for your resources, you know, the yarn companies that we buy from or the wool that comes from Shanico Farms in Oregon, and we keep it all in, in, in the U.S. is to control the quality and make sure that the, the innovation that we bring to the table is head and shoulders above the com- competition. Mm. You know, Amazon, you can buy speed socks all day long cheaper. Are they really good? Are they really going to last? And what are they doing to the environment when they make them? Yeah, yeah. Um, have you had any pushback internally um, or from, you know, consultants that have been hired or whatever to to challenge that? Or has this been a decision that no one's wavered on, no one's ever given any consideration to? Uh, consultants I don't hire. Okay. <laughs> Good. There's the cocky shame right there. Uh, I should probably listen more, but uh, the MBAs that told us that we should go to China uh, I'm glad I wasn't in China hmm. uh, during the COVID and the supply chain issues and potential problems of the world today. And I do believe that made in America should mean something and made in North Carolina locally here should mean something. This was the American dream for my father and it, it hmm. turned true for me. Uh, you know, I've, I'm 60. I started defeat when I was 29. And now we fight through this one that we're facing and I'm looking for a nice, nice trajectory. But hmm. You know, a lot of the famous sayings are, you know, success was yesterday. Tomorrow's another battle and we can get beat tomorrow, you know, but it's not the end of the war. You just got to keep going. You alluded um, in your your previous sentence about, you know, environment and, you know, sustainability issues and stuff with manufacturing and apparel is a, a big um, contributor to that. When did it start coming on your radar? Because I do know that you guys do have uh, policies around that, and you feel very passionately about the environment. When did that start becoming a a priority in your sourcing and manufacturing? And it's always been uh, ingrained in my ethos from watching Jacques Cousteau uh, underwater sea of Jacques Cousteau uh, or Electric Company on television, where they teach you to be good stewards. And it's always been in my heart. To make sure if we make something, make it last. Mm-hmm. And if we make it last, that's that's the first step. And then as things started to evolve, you know, we started to we were the first company in the world to get the recycled water bottles. And then we challenged that company to recycle their bottles in America, which was incredible to mm-hmm. get that done. And and that company's called Reprieve, uh, Unify Reprieve from Greensboro, North Carolina. And so that is on on Another side of the coin, when you make socks, you make waste. Okay, you make a sock that's got a hole or no toe and it's just waste. Well, we found a local company that will recycle all of our waste into yarn. And they're based in uh, 
They're called material returns and they're based in Morganton. We take care of our waste. We buy responsible, sustainable polyester, recycled polyester. And then we source our wool from Shanaku Farms. And not only that's in Oregon, and it's a RWS farm, so to speak, to where they've got a, a very high standard of, of ethics on their sheep. And they superwash it in South Carolina. It's spun in South Carolina. It gets dyed in North Carolina. And then we make it in North Carolina. And that is the first of its kind where it is ranched to retail. And we're making an announcement within the next couple of days or weeks about the uh, RWS program that's coming to you very soon. And so it's just in our, it's just in our yeah. heart, you know, because we play in nature. Hmm. Why would we want to muck about? What are some advice to, to, to budding entrepreneurs or, or any entrepreneurs out there that you would, you've learned and, and, and stand by? I guess when you have a gut feeling, give it a lot of thought and then go with your gut feeling. And, you know, if I would have done that in several cases, I would have been maybe not so depressed. Uh, and, and that had to do with a gut feeling about uh, ethics and uh, a, a trusted party. And that, that is a key one. And uh, surround yourself with people that you trust and that are better than yourself. You know, if you can do that, you can win a lot of games. If you trust them, let them do their job. Don't micromanage. Easier said than done. But you know, for an entrepreneur, uh, give up the reins. Let other people take the reins. If they're better than you, let them do it. Yeah. You focus on the big golf balls, the big things that you need to take care of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, otherwise you're a bottleneck to the business aren't if you're the best person in it. Yeah, and then if you if you also uh remember that birds of a feather or your circle of influence, surround yourself with people that are smarter than you mm. and better than you, you know, in life and and you'll aspire to be them. Mm. I'm the dumbest guy in most crowds, and uh, I, I'm kind of like the trailer in in the nice neighborhood, and I I probably pull their property value down, but <laughs> I'm learning. I'm I'm cleaning my trailer up. So you know, right. I think that uh, those are some some uh, things that entrepreneurs can do. Yeah, yeah. I forgot to ask you about one thing. Um, you, just staying on top of sock technology. Who would have thought there was such a thing 31 years ago, right? Until you came <laughs> around. You, you do keep on top of it. You've, you've been innovative in that. And, you know, your latest EvoJet Aero socks, you guys have claimed a 20, what, a 24 watt improvement from, uh, I'm not sure the specifics around that, but is um, technical innovation the thing that you are always thinking about? Or because socks have become fast fashion and there's a lot of competition out there now. And how do you stay on top of it? And what do you do to, keep pushing boundaries on such a, an item that maybe isn't considered as being such a technical item. Well, it is. I, I shouldn't say that. It is. It is a technical item. It, it gets overlooked. It's, as I said, it's underwear for your feet, right? Yeah, but and you don't notice I, it when I, I it's there. And then when it's bad, you notice it, right? Our, our mission for you is to make you more comfortable. We're, we want to make your ride more comfortable. And then if you follow our core values of quality, innovation, and community, Innovation is steering you right in the face there, right? And you said, how can we make the sock? Well, I guess about in 2017, we were in our last year with Quick Step. We didn't know it, but we, this was our last year with Quick Step. We wanted to push the envelope with our sock. And so we started to see these clothing companies start to sew a cuff on a sock. It looked like shit. And it was falling down their legs. It wasn't good for a long five-hour race, you know, but 
it was there. It's kind of like a needle in the side. I'm going like, I, that, I don't know about that thing. So we created the Evo Disruptor. And when we went to the wind tunnel, it was the fastest sock tested, not just by us, but by Lotto Destiny, by Quickstep. All those guys tested. It was eight watts faster than a bare leg. Okay, huh. a bare shaved leg. It was eight watts faster. Right. So that's what Ala Philippe and and Team Quickstep were wearing. Uh, I think in 2017, if my if my date's correct. And then the technology kept pushing, and and these companies started to come out of the woodwork, creating. You know, Silica had an aerodynamic sock, and uh, I didn't know they made socks, uh, but they they had an aerodynamic sock, and uh, several other companies, No Pins, uh, Sokolon. And Sokolon actually pushed it pretty hard. They came out and they said that they were at uh, their test was 14 watts. So that really got our, you know, and they they compared it to the disruptor from 2017, just last year. And so we came out and went to the wind tunnel and we knocked it out of the park with 24 watts. And that was at this year's Tour de France launched on none other than Victor Campanets, who won the red number uh for his aggression and he was in almost every break and then if you look at their their uh victories after the tour de france have been incredible and you'll you'll see the other day somebody won with one foot on the pedal and they were wearing the evo jet <laughs> that's did right. you see the sprint finish i did i did yeah um, that was the evo jet in action <laughs> if he didn't have that sock on it damn it he would have lost now, are you won. saying 24 so watts compared that, to a bare leg is that how you measure that or what 24 watts yeah right you, your your base is a bare leg and then you so you think about a helmet or uh, a wheel you know those things are the wheels going around but the legs going around and up and down yeah you know it's in a vortex of hell yeah you know the helmet's steady so a sock is definitely uh you know proven to be more aerodynamic if you and and you can work in that space there's so much going on the taller the sock of course the more aerodynamic but at some point you look like an idiot you know you look like a basketball player <laughs> yeah so, yeah from the 70s so you know, there is something about you know, the fashion police that it's important <laughs> so feels like you embrace the competition and you you really enjoy the way it pushes you. Is that kind of the way you, because at first, like you said, you had no competition, but is that how you view competition these days in terms of innovation? Yeah, certainly. I love competition. You know, that's why I race a bike. I don't like the time trial so much. I like to race a bike against other people. So when we have these competitors in the game and they're, they're good people, they're good, they, they provide jobs and they're doing a great job. You know, those companies, uh, No Pins and Rule 28, they've, they've broken a lot of, of records. They've done incredible things. And it's nice to see that, hmm. you know, it's pushing innovation. And so it pushes us too. As long as they, they make true statements, you know, and ethical statements, that's all fair and game. That's Shane Cooper, founder, president, and chief psychologist of Defeat not to mention a generous founding member of this very business, Escape Collective. The music you'll hear playing in the background right now is from Shane's band, Chromali, and the song is called 10 Speed Cannibal. As you might pick up on, it's got Judas Priest vibes and is about the cannibal, Eddie Merckx. I encourage you to go and find it on Defeat's YouTube page where there's also an excellent video to go along with it. There are many more in there as well that you just gotta go and check out. Thank you to Shane for this wonderful conversation and for sharing your story and passions with us. I'm Wade Wallace, and you're listening to Overnight Success. Thank you. <laughs>